Hi, my name's Levon Myers. I just drank a bunch of coffee, and I'm going to talk about the NFL Draft. Welcome to episode of the Conversations with Myself podcast. Everyone's favorite podcast with no regular release schedule and no clear themes. Believe it or not, it has been a year since my first podcast, which was an episode on the 2021 NFL Draft. I did a 2021 NFL season preview episode last fall, but this will be my first time talking about football since then. And boy, do I love to talk about football. I've distanced myself a little bit from football as I've started my career as a creator because football definitely feels like something that was part of my old life. But that said, I still absolutely love it and can never get tired of talking about it, reading about it, listening to stuff, watching it. It's always going to be a big part of my life because it was really a formative experience for me and set me up for all of the successes that I've had since. And talking about that is a whole podcast episode in itself. So maybe in a couple years after I've done like three more episodes, I can finally get to that topic. Ha 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 I sourced some questions from social media on my Facebook and Twitter page. Follow me at LevonMeyer71. Big shout out to Pat McDonald for his several questions. Those are going to make up a big chunk of this episode. But his and the other questions were really good because they are questions that have an answer. And there's a lot of discussion that comes from those answers. Which is how conversations work, I guess. Getting really heavy with the meta jokes today. I wanted to start with everyone's favorite football topic, though. Quarterbacks. If you've been listening at all to any NFL media leading up to the draft... You've probably heard that this is a historically weak quarterback class. And I'm not here to disagree with that. The top four or five quarterbacks in this class would all be, I don't know, the fourth or fifth best quarterback in most drafts. The kind of guys that you take late in the first round or somewhere in the second round to see if they develop. And if they don't, you didn't give up too much. And if they do, you've got a starting quarterback. It's just that none of these guys feel safe. And of course, we've done the thing that we do every year where no matter how good the quarterback class is, we talk ourselves up into picking a couple of these guys in the top 10, which is honestly the team's fault for being in a position where they need to draft a quarterback in the top 10 because you should never be drafting for need. You should be drafting for depth and for cost-controlled contracts at important positions. I do want to get a little in-depth on my three favorite quarterbacks in this draft, the first being Malik Willis. Anyone that watched the NFL in the 90s might remember Cordell Stewart. And Malik Willis is Cordell Stewart, but adjusted for inflation. Cordell Stewart was an elite athlete. They called him Slash because he played quarterback, Slash, running back, Slash, wide receiver, Slash, returner. He just had a deep, deep well of athleticism, and he wanted the ball in his hands. And he was also good enough that you could put him at quarterback sometimes. But back in the 90s... Nobody knew how to shape an offense around a mobile guy. Like, if Lamar Jackson came out back then, he probably wouldn't have been that good. Even Michael Vick, who we think of as the best running quarterback of all time, they just threw him in a West Coast offense and said, hey, if you see a lane, go run, and we might design a little bootleg for you every now and again. The rigidity in the ways that teams were coached and managed back then, ugh. Malik Willis probably has the strongest arm in the draft class and is easily the most athletic quarterback. I mentioned Lamar a second ago. He's not quite the same type of runner as Lamar. It's more of a Jalen Hurts where he runs with a little more power. He doesn't have that elite wiggle, but 
he can easily pick up eight yards if you give him any sort of room, and he did that a lot at Liberty University. And yes, Liberty University is a real school. He's really raw as a quarterback and has some accuracy issues because, one, he didn't get great coaching at Liberty, and two, he could rely on his athleticism to get away with it. But the special stuff is special enough that like you can you overlook the bad and you just say, okay, here's what he can do. He's a special type of runner. He's got a special arm. Put him in an offense, design an offense around him. Maybe he'll develop those things. But even if he never does, he's still good enough that there's a high baseline, which can't be said for some of the other quarterbacks in the class. And I've always been a sucker for mobile quarterbacks, so I might be a little biased here. But if I had to bet money, I would say he's going to be the first quarterback picked on Thursday. And don't be surprised if the Lions do it at number two overall. If he makes it past the Lions, I doubt that the Seahawks would pass him up at, I think, ninth overall. Another quarterback I've become a fan of is Sam Howell out of North Carolina. If you would have asked a lot of experts before the season, they probably would have said he's a surefire top 10 pick, could definitely be the best quarterback in the class because of the year he had in 2020. But he kind of fell off a bit in 2021. There's a lot of different factors that go into it. Um, A lot of the weapons he had the previous year were now in the NFL, and the offense was operating a little differently, and this team around him just wasn't doing him any favors. So it looked like he got worse, even though he probably was playing at about the same level within himself. He's also a pretty mobile guy, but in a different way. Instead of a quick accelerating type of run style like Malik Willis has he runs like a straight up fullback like he had linebackers and safeties just bouncing off of him as he would put his head down and run for a touchdown and he doesn't look the part he's not huge or anything he just has weird balance with the ball in his hands as a passer he's fine probably better than Malik Willis a little bit weaker of an arm but he throws an accurate ball The main knock on him is that his offense at NC State was very basic. He wasn't having to make complex reads, much maneuver in the pocket, you know, move safeties with his eyes. He could just make easy throws on a lot of his passes. So you're drafting him and you're getting an unknown quantity, which if you hit on the high range of his possible outcomes, you've got a franchise quarterback. But on the low range, you've got a guy that might not be able to even stick around as a backup in this league. It's funny that I just said this league as if I work for the NFL or something. Howell probably slots in as a late first-round pick. I could see the Steelers grabbing him as early as 20 if he's there. Or if the Lions don't take a quarterback early, they might grab him at 32. If no one trades back into the first round to grab him, which is always a possibility. And I'll talk a little bit more on trades later. The last quarterback I'm going to talk about in depth is Desmond Ritter out of Cincinnati. Ritter is a really interesting prospect. He absolutely has the intangible type stuff. He took Cincinnati, which is not a big school by any means, and led them to the college football playoffs. And you could just tell how much he meant to that program. He surprised everyone at the Combine and tested really, really well. He ran a 4.540, which is blazing fast for a quarterback, and had an almost 11-foot broad jump, which is explosive as heck. The weird thing, though, is that that athleticism doesn't really show up on film. Not to say he doesn't look athletic, he just doesn't look that fast or that explosive. Which isn't necessarily a red flag in itself. You know, some guys, they don't need to use the athleticism. It kind of tells you that he might not have played another sport in high school, 
growing up or anything like that because when you play other sports you learn how to move your body in different ways like you watch patrick mahomes who was a really good baseball player same thing with kyler murray they both make throws and movements that look like baseball players but you don't really see that with ritter as far as the ability to make complex reads and quote-unquote run an nfl offense he might be the best at that and the most comfortable with it day one Cincinnati's offense was just a little more complex and didn't rely as heavily on RPOs, which is a run-pass option play, which is really simple to read. I could see him being a late first-round pick as well. The order that all of the quarterbacks are going to be taken in is totally a toss-up. Out of the three guys I just named, I wouldn't be surprised if any of them were the first quarterback taken or if any of them were the fourth quarterback taken. It's just weird, and it's going to depend on what teams like and what they need right now which is how the draft works. So the first fan question I'm going to get to is one about trades. Which team with multiple first round picks is more likely to make a move up or back and has the most to gain from trading their picks? For some context, there are eight teams with multiple first round picks, which is the most in NFL history, if I'm not mistaken. They are the Lions, Texans, Giants, Jets, Eagles, Saints, Packers, and Chiefs. I'll start by saying that I don't think any of these teams should trade up. Statistically speaking, trading up for a non-quarterback is almost never worth it. The more times you draft, especially higher up in the draft in the first round, the better chance you have of getting an elite player. And while the hit rate is a little lower at the bottom of the first round versus the top, it's not like the top of the first round is a sure thing. And the only position that's worth giving up another player for is quarterback because that's the level of influence that quarterbacks can have on a game. And like I said, not the best quarterback class. So I would strongly advise against anybody trading up. Out of all the teams with multiple firsts, though, the one that I think is most likely to move back would probably be the Giants. And that's based off of where they're picking and where they are as a franchise. They're kind of in a weird limbo, like they know Daniel Jones probably isn't it, but they want to give him one more year and there's no quarterbacks this year that are worth taking that you prefer to Daniel Jones. And you do want to start looking towards the future and setting the team up for success, whether that is Daniel Jones or a quarterback that you draft next year. And how do you do that? You pick more times for more chances to hit on good players. And if they stay at picks five and seven, they can get two really good players, probably an offensive lineman and a pass rusher or a DB. But alternatively, they could trade that number seven pick for something in the teens for some team that is just so desperate to move up for some reason. You probably gain a first round pick next year out of that, at the very least a second round pick this year or next year. And you've just done so much for yourself for the future while still being able to get a pretty good player in the middle of the first round. I do think that there will be a lot of movement in the first round, partially because of how weak the quarterback class is, because teams are going to be putting themselves in a position where they can get their quarterback next year if they think they'll need one, so they want to stockpile picks for next year by picking less or picking later this year. So a similar question I got was if the Packers should trade both of their firsts to move up for one of the elite wide receivers in this class, like one of the Ohio State guys or Jamison Williams or Drake London, and my answer to that is a resounding no. None of those guys are special enough to justify trading two picks for one player. If there was a Jamar Chase or even a C.D. Lamb type guy, 
then maybe we'll talk. But none of these receivers are that guy. Personally, I'm hoping that the Packers double dip at wide receiver with their two first round picks. Chances are at least one of them works out. Awesome, you've got a new number one wide receiver. If they both work out, now you've got one of the best wide receiving cores in the league for the home stretch of Aaron Rodgers' career. And yeah, they do have holes in other places that they could use one of these picks on. Wide receiver is still their biggest hole, and it's something that they desperately need after trading away Devontae. The two guys I would like for that double dip would be George Pickens out of Georgia and Sky Moore out of Western Michigan. When building a wide receiver room, you should be trying to build it like a basketball team. And what I mean by that is you should have guys with different skill sets. You've got your big 6'4", 6'5", guy that's going to win jump balls and contested catches. You've got your deep threat that's going to average 18 yards a catch. And then you've got a shorter, quicker route running guy working in the slot. When you do that, it lets you do a lot more with your offense and have that vast array of skill sets. So like anything could be happening at any time instead of a team that's got three deep threat wide receivers on the field and on third and five and you can't get anything done. Grabbing Pickens and Sky Moore would do just that. Pickens is that big bodied number one receiver. He's 6'3", 200 pounds, has incredible hands. And one of the best things he does that the Packers look for in wide receivers is blocking. Like, you can go on YouTube right now and find his blocking highlight reel of him just putting people in the dirt, which you don't see much from wide receivers, but it's always been something that the Packers really value. Sky Moore is a smaller guy, but he's got an incredible release. He runs his routes really well, and he just, when you watch him play, it's just, he's got such a high floor. Like, his worst-case scenario is that he's still contributing to your offense where there's going to be receivers picked ahead of him where their worst case scenario is they're a bust and out of the league in a few years. There's other receivers I'd be okay with the Packers taking, but those are my two favorites. And if they could only pick one, I would definitely go with George Pickens because I think he replaces what Devontae Adams did the best out of any of the guys that'll be there. Given that most of the people that I know are based in Wisconsin, you knew we were going to be talking about the Packers for a while. And the next Packer-related question is, why should the Packers trade for Debo Samuel, and why did Devontae Adams leave? To start, they should not trade for Debo Samuel. While Debo is one of the most talented young players in the league, I mean, he had 1,400 receiving yards and almost 400 rushing yards. That's insane. But I don't think any team that's not the 49ers would be able to maximize him because they used him in such a specific way. Any team that would be bringing him in wouldn't be getting that same rushing and receiving value because of either their scheme or they have players that already fill that role. And for the Packers, it's both. Like I said earlier, the Packers need that number one receiver that can run all the routes and make the big catches on third and seven and that you just trust. And Debo is electric, but he's not a great route runner yet. He could very well still become that, but you'd be paying $25 million a year for a lot of question marks. Plus, the Packers might already have the best running back duo on the league with Aaron Jones and A.J. Dillon, so you wouldn't be tapping into the running ability of Debo. It just doesn't make sense from any standpoint, even though the Packers have been linked to him. Nothing's going to come of it, and I can say that confidently. And why wouldn't Adams stay? I have spent a lot of time discussing this exact question with some of my friends. And I think the answer is pretty straightforward. No offense to Green Bay, but Las Vegas is one of the most fun cities in the world. And now he gets to have his college best friend, Derek Carr, as his quarterback. 
that's a pretty sweet deal. Not to mention that Nevada has no state income tax and Devante is going to be getting paid $28 million a year. So that's kind of nice. A lot of Packer fans, as they are prone to do, have taken Adam's departure personally. And I don't think it was anything against the Packers. He just had a really neat opportunity and he wanted to play elsewhere because he's already proved that he's the best. So why not go be the best out in Vegas? Apologies to anybody that wanted a more emotional response from that and didn't get their feelings validated. Before I get to the next question, just wanted to give some closing thoughts on the Packers overall. While the entire offseason for the Packers has been focused on offense with Rodgers' situation and then Adams leaving and Marquez Valdez-Scantling being gone, the defense hasn't been talked about much, but it might be the most talented unit since that group that won the Super Bowl that had Charles Woodson prime clay matthews bj raji but this isn't far off if they can manage to get a defensive lineman and maybe another defensive back in the draft that can contribute that's a deep athletic talented defense that is probably going to win you some games if they can come away from the draft with that as well as a wide receiver that contributes i like their odds of making a run as much as i have these last few years i'm ready to get hurt again A question that I really liked was, what are my thoughts on how the Rams are currently building and proceeding to win a Super Bowl versus a draft first team like the Packers? So the general perception is that since the Rams are always trading away high picks, that they don't pick as much. That is patently untrue. Since the 2017 draft, the Rams have picked 45 players. Compare that to the quote-unquote drafting champion Packers, who have drafted 47 players. Only two more. To add to that, over the last 10 years, the Rams have had the third most draft picks of any team in the NFL. So you're probably thinking, if they've traded their first round pick away every year for the last five years, how are they still picking so many times? And how did they manage to win a Super Bowl doing that? It comes back to trading down. When it's the mid to late second round and their first pick is coming up, they've tended to trade back a few spots, accumulate some more draft picks, then trade away those draft picks, So even though they're not picking those blue chip guys up in the first round, they're still bringing a ton of guys in. And the chances that some of those guys are going to be good is pretty high. That's why it's a great strategy to draft more overall instead of draft higher. If you look at their starting lineup, they have a few superstars in Matt Stafford, Aaron Donald, Jalen Ramsey. But the rest of them are mid to late round draft picks that are just good enough to be supported by the superstars around them. And then every now and again, you'll stumble into a guy like Cooper Cup, who's quickly becoming one of the best wide receivers in the league. All that said, when you are trading away your first round picks, you have to make sure that the guys you're trading for are worth it and then some, because you're not just giving away a lot of draft capital for them, you're probably paying them a big contract as well. While football is so far from predictable or perfect science, there are a lot of things that teams can do to put themselves in the best position possible to be successful, whether that's through the draft, through free agency, or on the field. you got to take advantage of these tiny little statistical edges you can find, because in a game where a few inches can matter, you can steal a couple percentage points here and there, all those plays that are inches are going to start going your way. And I absolutely love seeing teams take a more analytical approach to everything because it tends to work out like it did for the Rams. I wish that when I was a player that I saw football the same way that I do now because I would have played differently. I would have approached training and seeing the game differently. 
I've I've learned so much since my career ended that I wish I could have applied back then. And I wasn't mentally or emotionally mature enough to understand it the way I do now. But it's kind of fun to think about how I would have applied these types of things. Back to a more draft-specific question. What are my thoughts on the best pass rusher in the draft, Kayvon Thibodeau, and his apparent issues? Those being that he has interests outside of football. I know this doesn't answer the question right away, but I think he's the second best pass rusher in the draft behind Aiden Hutchinson. That said, he should be a top five pick, top ten at the very least, and is a really gifted athlete and a really special pass rusher. And at the end of the college football season, he was kind of the consensus number one overall pick, and he's lost that designation for no particular reason. Uh, One of the theories is because he's got interests outside of football. From what I've heard and read, he's taken a very entrepreneurial approach to his upcoming NFL career. He's trying to establish his own branding, um, create an image, and he's even got his own cryptocurrency. And I imagine for a lot of the more old-fashioned coaches and GMs in the league, and there are still too many of those bopping around, that a guy trying to maximize his branding and image and be involved in something like crypto, which is a whole other topic, it's intimidating for them because they all see football players as assets and not as people. I fully support everything that Thibodeau is doing to make the most of the opportunity that he's given. Because even if he is good, his career could end at any time. And if he's not good and never gets a second contract or never lives up to the first-round hype, then he's still setting himself up for long-term success. And I, as an entrepreneur myself, really appreciate that. Too many guys just assume they're going to have a 10-year career or be able to stay healthy through all that or that they're going to make a bunch of money, and it seldom works out that way. You have to get while the getting's good, and that's what he's doing. It's the same reason that I support any player that's holding out for more money if they think that they deserve that. And I still hear the old-fashioned take of, they're making millions of dollars, what's millions more? If you were offered a 30% raise to go to a different company that's slightly better or slightly worse than the one you work at, a lot of you that are listening to this would take that offer no question. And that's exactly what these NFL guys are doing and all professional athletes for that matter. If you're blessed enough to be making $50,000 a year, your lifestyle probably reflects that income. And for the guys that are making $25 million a year, a lot of the time their lifestyle reflects that income. And if it doesn't, it probably means that they're saving that money for their life after football, because that's a very long time, even if you have a 10-plus year career. There's still a lot of life to live after that. These guys want to make sure that their kids and maybe grandkids and the people around them have a good life. So many professional athletes grew up with next to nothing and their sport was their way out and they're trying to make sure that the people that they love don't have to be in those financially tough situations. So the next time you roll your eyes when a player wants $5 million more per year on his contract or is holding out of training camp to get a new deal, just Think about why he's doing that and what you would do if you were in a similar situation. It's all relative. While we're, sort of, on the topic of edge rushers like Kayvon Thibodeau, an interesting one in this draft that I wanted to talk about was Trayvon Walker. Talking about him gives an interesting insight into how NFL decision makers pick players and evaluate talent. Trayvon Walker played at Georgia this last season, and it was one of the most 
talented defensive units in college football history. And his production was average. He only had six sacks, and there's going to be guys picked after him that had more than twice that many this season. But this guy is being talked about as a potential number one overall pick. And why is that? It's because he's a really special athlete. At 275 pounds, he ran a 4.540, which is a 99th percentile level of athleticism for that size. Taking into account all of his measurables, like vertical jump, which was 35 inches, broad jump, which was over 10 feet, as an athlete, he falls in the 99.9th percentile for his size, which speaks for itself. NFL teams see a guy with that size and that level of athleticism, and they just start falling all over themselves, thinking of what they can do with him. Because for right or for wrong, a lot of them think that they know better and that if they get in the right weight program and around the right coaching, that they can tap into that athleticism and take a player that was an elite athlete but all right player and turn them into an elite player because of said athleticism. And there's not enough data on these rare athletes that come out on whether it's more likely or not that they'll become a good player because you just see so few of these freaks. You get one or two every year, and that's not a big enough sample size to glean anything from. I've just found it really interesting hearing different guys talk about their opinion on Trayvon Walker and how athleticism plays into evaluating players overall. So I wanted to share that with you. And now I get to talk about a topic that's very near and dear to my heart, which is offensive line play. Someone wants to know how the tackles in this year's class compare to the ones in last year. And the first thing that pops into my head on that is how stylistically variable the tackles are at the top of this class. A lot of time with offensive linemen in the draft, it's very clear who's number one, who's number two, who's number three. It's There's like a hierarchy to it, and there's a lot of objective things in offensive line play that are good, and usually one guy is objectively better than the rest, and he goes first, and so on and so forth. This year, teams that want to tackle kind of get to pick their flavor based on how they want to run their offense and what they're looking for. My personal favorite is Ikem Ikwanu out of NC State. He might be the best pure run blocker as a tackle that I've seen since I've been paying closer attention to the draft. He just absolutely buries people and plays so aggressively in a way where he doesn't, he's not out of control because a lot of guys that play too aggressively it's easy to get caught in bad positions because you're trying to take someone's head off. I've been there firsthand where you just really want to lay into a guy and he sees you come and he uses your momentum against you and hits you with a little ole. Um, Iquanu doesn't fall into that trap. He does it within himself and it's just really impressive. The reason why he's not the consensus number one offensive lineman though is his pass blocking is... Not bad, just there's other guys that are better at that, and a lot of teams view that as the more important skill of run blocking versus pass blocking because so many teams lean towards the pass in the NFL. And I do think Iquandu could be a fine starter at tackle in the NFL. He might have some all-pro potential at guard because you can mitigate a lot of the pass blocking stuff because guard pass blocking, it's less in space than for a tackle, so it's not easier, but different and fits his skill set. And then he could really focus on the run blocking aspect. And you want your guards to be better at run blocking than your tackles in most schemes anyway. So I'm really interested to see if the team that takes him ends up moving him inside to guard either right away or tries him at tackle. And if he's not great, bumps him inside. Another interesting guy is Evan Neal out of Alabama. 
it really feels like literally every year Bama is putting a tackle into the NFL, and that might not be too far off. It's They're a factory at almost every position. So, of course, offensive tackle is just another one. He is 6'7", 350, but if you see him, he looks like a tight end. When you think of someone that's 6'7", 350, you probably think of someone that is just very tall and very wide, but he carries it really well. It's a slender 350, and he moves really well. And when you get a guy with that kind of size that can move and shows the ability to play offensive line at a high level, you want to get him in the door because he's the type of guy that you can just plug in at left tackle and never have to worry about again. And I think that'll be the case here. Charles Cross out of Mississippi State is definitely the best pass blocking tackle in the draft. He had over 700 pass blocking snaps in 2021 and only gave up 16 pressures. And you don't need full context to know that that is special. Another intriguing tackle prospect is Bernard Ryman out of Central Michigan. When the pandemic started eight years, five years, two years? Yeah, when the pandemic started two years ago, he was a tight end. But his coaches at Central Michigan saw some potential to move him to offensive line, and they had him bulk up, which probably means eating five meals a day. And here he is two years later, about to be a first-round draft pick. The only major knock on him is that he played at a lower level of competition in Central Michigan. But you can see that tight end athleticism come through when he's playing offensive line. And from what I've seen on him, what I really love is that within a game, you can see him improving. You can see him get beat by a move by a defensive end. And the next time the defensive end tries that move, he's ready for it and it doesn't work. It's not easy to adjust your play style or technique in the middle of a game. And it takes special athletes to be able to do that, not just at offensive line, but at any position. The last O-lineman that I want to touch on is Tyler Lindenbaum out of Iowa. He's probably the best center prospect that's come out in at least the last decade. And he's only six foot two, 296 pounds. There's some schools that when they're recruiting, they won't even look at you unless you're at least 6'3", 6'4", and 300 pounds. And here he is, one of the most dominant run blockers of all time in the Big Ten at only 6'2". And what a lot of people would consider a disadvantage with that size he uses it to his advantage because he is incredibly quick with his first step off the line. He, when he's blocking linebackers in space, he looks like an oversized fullback because that's just the level of athlete that he is. And center has become a lower-valued position in the NFL because there's a limited impact you can make physically. But if you have an elite center that you can just plug and play and trust to make the right line calls and get the rest of the line in the right position to make the plays that they do... That's a really valuable player. The Eagles have had that with Jason Kelsey for the last 10 years. The Packers had that with Lindsley for a little while. Peyton Manning had it with Jeff Saturday, who was another undersized center. If he were this level of prospect at tackle or even at guard, he's a surefire top 10 pick. But given that he's a center, it's probably going to be mid to late first round. I am excited, though, to see how all of the offensive line picks shape up because I could definitely see three or four of them going in the top 10, or I could see only three or four going in the top 20. Those first few picks, depending on what teams do with quarterbacks and pass rushers, are really going to dictate how the rest of the draft goes because in every draft, there's a pivot point, usually like the fifth or sixth pick where you know no one's sure what this team is going to do and it's going to send dominoes to the rest of the draft. But with how many question marks there are and how there's no clear number one guy, 
every pick is essentially going to be a pivot point. So it's been really hard to do mock drafts and guess who's going to pick who because it's just so unclear. That said, I will be doing a full first-round mock draft again this year. Probably going to drop that on Thursday at some point, so keep an eye on my social media if you have any remote interest in that. But I think that just about covers everything I wanted to talk about today. There are countless hours of things you can talk about with the draft. Trust me, I've spent more time than I'm proud of listening to podcasts about it over the last few months, but so much of it just comes down to speculation. Even the reports you see from official guys like Adam Schefter or Ian Rappaport, a lot of it is just guessing or teams intentionally leaking positive or negative things about guys to try and make a move. Nobody really knows what's going to happen on the draft on Thursday, and that's what makes it exciting. There's literally millions of different scenarios, and I just love that every year and seeing how it shakes out. If you have any questions about the draft or have any ideas for a future podcast, feel free to reach out to me on social media at at LeavonMeyer71. And hey, if you have any marketing or graphic design needs, check out LeaveOnTheLight.com. That's L-E-V-O-N, TheLight.com. You could find some interesting stuff there. Who knows? But until next time, be safe, be well, and I hope that you enjoy the NFL draft. Thanks for listening.